Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 79 of the Snyder Cut. I am your recovered host, Jeff Snyder, senior film reporter at Collider. And yeah, I'm sorry about last week. I, I really wanted to, to gut through it. I just couldn't, man. That second shot put me on my ass. I'm a Moderna man. I am fully vaxxed now. Uh, I got the shot on Thursday afternoon. Uh, so we always kind of planned to tape it on Friday. I thought I'd be okay by, by Friday afternoon. But yeah, man, I, I just needed another day. I was feeling, uh, I, I had a headache. I had chills. I had a fever. It was just, I can't, I can't go on camera like that. I got to have energy to do the show. Um, and which means that we have like a jam-packed show and I don't know why I'm wasting breath on, on this intro because we have like two weeks of news worth uh, covering. Um, geez, okay, let's start with the arc light. I mean, I, I was in therapy this week when that news hit and it hit me, it, it felt like a dagger in the heart. And, it, and it's like, I'm not naive. I, I don't think that the, uh, that the Cinerama Dome is going anywhere. I think it's even pretty unlikely that Arclight Hollywood will go anywhere. I mean, it won't be called the Arclight Hollywood anymore um, unless somebody comes in and, and buys the chain or whatever. Um, you know, I, I can see how this was all part of a sort of lease negotiation, that kind of thing. But still, when you see that headline, you don't really care what it says underneath. Like the, the headline is this place that you've been going to, that your your church almost is, is being taken away, torn down, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I think I'm actually, I'm like surprised that this hadn't happened sooner, uh, given how, you know, theaters had been on the ropes for, for the past year without any, you know, a ton of big titlers uh, or anything. Like, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more just straight up closures. We, we've seen, you know, chapter 11s and I think it was Alamo Drafthouse that filed bankruptcy. We've seen AMC, you know, being, you know, losing like $4.4 billion. I'm sure it restructured a ton of its debt and, and stuff like that. So it's like, it's tricky, um, you know, as to the fate of what, what the Arclight Hollywood at least will be. I, I don't know, you know, whether there will still be Arclights in Pasadena and Sherman Oaks and Culver City and Santa Monica or Boston and Washington, D.C., Chicago, like wh wherever it is. Um, but like the Arclight Hollywood is one of the biggest money makers in the country as far as movie theaters go. Like they just print money there because uh, you can also get away with with higher prices. Right. Uh, and so, you know, who, who comes in to rescue this? Is it I don't think it's a cabal of Hollywood stars or directors. I don't think it's necessarily a streamer. I, I know, you know, a lot of people are sort of calling for that. Uh, you know, why doesn't uh, Netflix buy it? Because it's like right, you know, the Arclight Hollywood is right next door, just like the Arclight Culver City is right next to Amazon. And I mean, you know, that, that could happen, but that's just not the business that Netflix is really in. I mean, the, their whole, whole point of Netflix is to deliver these things to your, to your home. Um, and, and plus, you know, it has the single screens in New York and Los Angeles, right? It's already bought a couple of single screen movie theaters. So, and that's really all they need to, to meet Oscar requirements. And by the way, we don't even know if those are going to change. We don't know if next year, two years from now, whatever, there's even going to be a requirement to have a theatrical release to be eligible for Oscars, which is what it's all about for, for, for Netflix, basically anyways. Um, so yeah. 
I, I don't know if I see that happening. I don't know that I see studios shelling out, you know, because because you know the, um, the 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 laws or whatever got changed last year, right? That's you know before for the last 50, 60 years, studios could not own movie theaters, but now they can. But it just seems like everybody's pivoting away from that, you know. Everybody's sort of trying to build up their streaming services. So I don't really see a studio coming to the rescue. Uh, you know, could, could some billionaire like an Elon Musk or, or someone like that swoop in? Sure. Um, if only to just like do what they want with like the Cinerama Dome. I, I, I think, uh, I just think that that whole block, it's right in the heart of Hollywood. And I know I haven't been there in a year and Amoeba's moving and, you know, all these shops around the theater. I don't know whether they're still open or things are new, new things are going in there, but it's definitely a, a weird changing time. The, the, the sands are shifting in, in Los Angeles. I just, you know, I had so much, I made so many memories at, at the Arclight, even at the Pacific theaters at the Grove, you know, like I, I love going to the Grove to see a movie. Um, and, and it's just hard to imagine the LA movie theater landscape without those two places. And, and so my, you know, my heart first and foremost goes out to all the staffers Right. Because I think that the staff, particularly at the Arclight, is really what made that place so special, whether it was the person who takes your tickets and then comes and gives the introduction, excuse me, or the projectionists or the people, you know, working the, the like the, the bar out in the lobby. I know, you know, speaking on behalf of Collider, like we had a really good partnership going with Arclight and like our screening series and FYC, like I think the last time I was even in an Arclight or, you know, Arclight Hollywood was like on Oscar night when Parasite won and Perry and I were hosting this screening and, and you know, during the commercials sort of doing our, our FYC show, like that was awesome that people were, were paying to watch the Oscars on the big screen with a whole show hosted by Perry and I. Um, so it was, it was certainly disheartening to, to see that news, but I do, I do think that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. I, I don't think that, the, that this cultural landmark will just disappear forever. I, but I, they hung on, hung on as long as they could. Um, you could see, I think the weekend before that story broke, IndieWire, you know, uh, mentioned how there was an, an eviction notice on the door for uh, Arclight Culver City. They owed like 180 grand just for March. So, you, you know, you do the math on that. That's $2.2 million a year, right? Uh, just on rent. Now I understand that it, it probably costs another two and a half million to operate the theater, right? To pay the staff and, and you know, pay the electricity bills and all the food and stuff like that. So you're looking at like $5 million operating costs uh, or thereabouts, 4.7. Um, but you know, a movie theater like that can make anywhere from seven to $8 million a year. So, you know, there is a nice little, you could be making millions of dollars a year in, in profit if somebody were to step up. Um, yeah, oh, just, I, I, I think the important thing though is that no matter whether the Arclight Hollywood and the Cinerama Dome, which isn't gonna happen again, but whether it opens or closes or not, like movie theaters, there, there will be other movie theaters. Things will pop up, you know, maybe Alamo Drafthouse opens in, in LA, uh, you know, theater in Hollywood or whatever. Um, but the point is we're going to find each other you know, movie fans, we're going to find that lobby where we all congregate in and have the same conversations that we did uh, at, at the Arclight. Um, I just think that was a, a special place with a special atmosphere. I love like the, the gigantic, you know, wall-sized mosaic 
um, you know, leading up to like this grand staircase that I was rarely on because I always took the escalator because I'm a lazy fat fuck. But uh, I don't know. It was it's a special place. And uh, and I hope something gets done and soon because that's the first place I want to go when I get back to L.A. Um, all right. Last week, the story I've been waiting for for a decade finally arrives. And of course, I'm out sick to talk about it. But yeah, it's the Hollywood Reporter Scott Rudin story. Um, which just finally had some great like examples. There weren't a lot of people like going on the record or anything, but like this is like the worst kept secret in Hollywood. It is, a, it is an open secret if you could even call it that. That Scott Rudin is an animal and a monster. Uh, like I will always have respect for the guy because he he is a great producer and he has great taste and a real eye for talent. And there, but like there's a lot of people that 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 have that. And they don't behave the way that, that Rudin does. Um, I mean, even people with like more power, more awards, more money, like I, I just have never seen those people behave like I know Scott Rudin behaves. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that other people don't behave like that. In fact, you know, so Megan Ellison, right, for, from Annapurna, she was the, really the only one who kind of went on Twitter, the only real like high profile figure. and, and you know, called Rudin what he is. And then I think it was Variety who just did a story like yesterday or two days ago, sort of like, well, you know, it's a little hypocritical coming from Megan Ellis, Ellison considering her reputation and her, you know, she's thrown things. She threw a patio chair at an executive and chewed out Eric Lomas in front of all the, the senior staff at her company. So like, listen, these people are used to getting their way. It's as simple as that. Amazon, Netflix, Apple, these places are no different. And when I go off, when I go rogue, so to speak, as they like to say, and I post news without them signing off on it or confirming it, they get not throwing things and screaming, but they get just as indignant. It's because no one tells them no, right? They're, they're the money people. No one is used, Scott Rudin's not used to hearing no from people. But, you know, it's like, these are 20 something kids fresh out of college. Like you can't treat people like this, even if they're young and inexperienced and make mistakes. And, and you know, I, I just, the stories that I've heard about Rudin over the years have been stomach churning. I, I mean, clearly as that story illustrates, the guy's a throw. Loves to, if it's within distance of his arms, he will throw it, uh, whether that goes for a cell phone. I, I've heard a lot of batteries over the years. I mean, think about somebody whipping a battery at you. If someone did that to me, I would kick the shit out of them. I would love to see Scott Roden th throw something at me because I would be up in that guy's face so quickly. And if I didn't, if I had the presence of mind to reel it in, I'd walk right out of the office and go straight to a lawyer because ka-ching payday. I actually love that that little detail in the story about Rudin uh, busting that assistant's hand. And then the first call he made was to his lawyer because he knows like, okay, I crossed the line. Like I'm, I'm fucked. I'm gonna have to pay for this one. Um, you know, why are, are people still in business with him? Well, it's because he makes great movies. But, you know, and, and again, I, I don't think everyone in, in Hollywood needs to be a, a super nice person. Like, I think that we've gotten a little carried away with how nice everybody is supposed to be. Um, but Rudin was just like, I mean, he, he's an asshole. 
And, you know, I have a little bit of experience with him and I always respected him for sort of being honest with me about this. But I, I remember calling, I think I had, I mean, I've called him multiple times over the years. I think he only took the call once, but I think I was calling about Oscar Isaac landing the lead in um, Inside Lou and Davis over Justin Timberlake and like Jason Siegel. Uh, and I think when I called Rudin, he like got on the phone and was like, you know, I only, listen, I only deal with, with Mike Fleming. So you can like, fuck off. Like, I, you know, I, I don't need to deal with you. I, I have my guy. I'm set. Goodbye. Um, and like, don't bother calling him because it's like when I was calling the studios for Rudin stuff, they would always be like, well, it's a Rudin production. I got to check with Scott. So even like the studios themselves who are the ones supposed to have the power, they're deferential to this guy. So, you know, while I, I think, and I'm pretty sure he screwed me over on that, on that Lou and Davis story five minutes later. I'm sure he gave it to, to Fleming. Um, but it's like, ever since then it was freeing because I never had to call Scott Rudin. And the, on the anytime the studio said, well, I got to check with Rudin. I'm like, no, you don't, I'll, I'll post it right now. You can tell him it was me. Like I love, I live and love to fuck with this guy. Um, so I, 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 but you know what? That, that only hurts him so much, right? Like, okay, the, the announcement goes to Variety or the rap or the tracking board uh, when he wanted it to go to deadline. Like, that's not the end of the world for this guy. Tatiana Siegel is the one who really stepped up and put the nail in the coffin. Like, again, not that I think that Hollywood's going to necessarily shun him, but you're starting to see it, like the, the Broadway story. And maybe, you know, that one also has some stuff going on because Scott Rudin's not associated with that Moulin Rouge show that Karen Olivo or Oliva, I forget, uh, that she walked away from. Uh, maybe that's just an actress who wants to get out of a, a contract, right? Like, but the, the fact that there are actors pushing back and saying, well, why is the Broadway community being so silent about this abuse? You know, it's, we'll see if, if that sort of waterfalls or, you know, snowballs, right? Um, it, it definitely has been, been quiet, uh, but I can't imagine that Rudin's yelling at, at big stars, right? Um, I think he's one of these, these guys who like knows who's in the room and, and how he has to behave. Um, but you know, when, when he's the, the, the top dog, like he just goes crazy. Um, and so, you know, some of the, the, the things that I haven't really seen a lot of the stories address is like, okay, Rudin went through 119 assistants, which is like an absurd, crazy amount for anybody. But there's so many former assistants who, who graduated from the school of Rudin and either, I mean, they went one of two ways. They're like, I either want to be exactly like Scott Rudin and everything that he did to me, I want to do to some other poor schmuck, or I'm going to be a better boss and I'm going to, I'm going to be everything that Scott Rudin is not. But I, I do think there's a lot of executives uh, in Hollywood who, who were put through the paces under Rudin and, you know, pay it forward, so to speak. Um, and I think there's probably, yeah, a lot of people who want to, who want to share their stories, but like Megan Ellison are afraid to, because then they're just going to get the, you know, the hypocrite card sort of thrown at them. Um, because everyone in this business has, has screamed at somebody at some point, like there are very few who have just kept their cool throughout. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of despise hypocrites, but at the same time, I think that's a risk worth taking, you know, if, it, if it's going to actually shine a light on, on, on Rudin and, and his just widespread abuses. Um, I don't know. I, I think the guy needs help and I, and I hope he gets it. I think he needs to, to, to talk to somebody because he's clearly got some issues. Uh, meanwhile, you know, as far as talking to people, we got Ray Fisher, 
right? Talking to Hollywood Reporter, Chris Terrio, talking to Vanity Fair. Everybody, now that the Snyder Cut is out, everybody wants to get on the record, get their story straight. The Ray Fisher story was like insane. I mean, it helped me understand where the guy was coming from a little bit. But like, you're an actor. Like, and I don't want to just take away everything that actors bring to the table because I love actors. I mean, that's why I've dedicated my life to writing about them and telling their stories, right? And they, and they do, they're very creative people and they make choices. Having said that, you know, a lot of actors, as an actor, you're kind of there to be a puppet, right? So that the writer and the director can stick their hand up your ass and make you talk. Here are the lines that I wrote. Here's the way I want you to move and deliver them. You know, and, and, and they're both pulling the strings. Um, and it's like, so when I just think like Ray Fisher sort of got sold this idea of this movie by Zack Snyder. And then when it got taken away and, and changed, he's like, what the fuck? But that doesn't make it like a racially motivated thing. It's really just a, well, you know, Joss has his idea for these characters and there's only so much screen time and you are not a movie star like the way that any of these other people are, nor is Cyborg nearly as big a character as any of these other characters. And it's just like, you get the short end of the stick. And Ray Fisher could have just like held his head high, you know, and been vindicated with this Snyder cut in which he is very good and gone on and had a really nice career in this town. But I do think that he has absolutely spoiled it, you know, poisoned the waters for himself. As I've said numerous times, I just can't imagine being a producer and executive and saying, you know, oh, Ray Fisher, good actor, but like, do I really want to put up with his headaches if we have to cut a line here or there or cut a big scene that Ray thought he was great in uh, and then have to deal with like, you know, this, accountability over entertainment tweets for the next three years. Like it's just, it's insane. And I can't believe like his, his agents allow him to continue on this path. Chris Terrio, meanwhile, is like, you know, complaining about how, you know, they changed this on me and, and blah, blah. it's just like, bro, you are not the first person to work with gigantic characters. Like this is what studios do. They've been known for doing this since the dawn of time. Like, I don't know, man. You would just think Chris Terrio would be um, more aware of the fact that, yeah, this is going to be a, a gigantic collaboration and, and it's not always going to be the, the way that, that, that you want. I don't know. It, it just seems like what a clusterfuck. What? And everyone's trying to get their own narrative out there. And, 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 when, and when an actor like comes to Hollywood Reporter and says, all right, I want to give you my, my side of the story. Chris Terry goes to Vanity Fair and says, I want to give you my side of the story. They don't ask the tough questions. They say, all right, give me the story. I don't want to challenge you too much on your story because then you won't bring it to us the next time. I mean, if I could read, like if I had the time, this was just an unlimited time podcast, I, could, I would read you the Ray Fisher story all the way down and stop line by line by line to be like, wow, well, this is crazy. This is insane. Like, I just don't have that kind of time. I didn't take notes on it. This is just what, from what I remember from like two or three weeks ago. But both those stories, just, just kind of like wild. And it does go to show you like what is really going on behind the scenes of a lot of these big movies. Um, yeah, okay. Jeez. Uh, Kevin Smith. Making Kilroy was here in NFT. 
I love Kevin Smith. I have loved Kevin Smith since 1994 when I was 10 years old. I've been to his house. I've smoked weed with him. I see him at festivals uh, and I say, Kevin, and he'll, you know, like we recognize each other. Um, I don't recognize this move. I, I love that, that uh, Kevin has this sort of carnival barker type of personality, you know, and, and he's always willing to try different stuff, whether he's, you know, doing the red state option at, at Sundance or, you know, distributing uh, Jay and Silent Bob on his own or, you know, reboot, sorry, Jay and Silent Bob reboot on his own, which was very successful for an indie movie, like the way that he sort of, sort of did it himself. But like making Kilroy was here an NFT. First of all, I hate this fucking NFT, NFT craze. It's, it's absolutely insane and stupid. Like you're buying something that you don't actually own, right? You don't, you don't get to hold it. I mean, it's fucking nothing. It means fucking gobbledygook. Like, what is this? So he made a movie and now he wants to sell it as an NFT, which means, hey, uh, you know, Open Road or STX, yeah, they could buy it as an NFT and then own the distribution rights and just release it as a movie and make money off of it, which is just like normal. Um, or... You know, Joe Schmo, who made a lot of money in Bitcoin, could buy it as an NFT uh, for a couple million bucks or whatever. I don't know what the hell it's going to cost. And then just keep it. And then just hold on to it, him or horse herself. Just like Martin Shkreli, that douchebag farmer bro who bought the Wu-Tang album, right? Like, movies are made for people to enjoy. Uh, and I, and I, when I say people, I mean multiple people, like the public. Uh, I, I don't understand like why Kevin Smith would make this movie and go through the past year of like all the stories about it, uh, you know, and then sell it to someone who may just keep it on their computer. Um, it just seems like there's, there's a real like disrespect for the audience there and for your fans. I don't know how this movie movie was financed. I don't know if he did like a, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how you know, who, who paid for it or whatever or fans were involved or, or anything like that. It just, it just felt like a slap in the face for all of Kevin's supporters. Now, here's the thing. Maybe Kevin, you know, like I respected his response to someone where he was just like, listen, th this may very well fail, but I need to find out for myself if, if it's going to fail. Like, I don't need, you know, Jeff Snyder telling me it's going to fail. Um, and I get that. I really do, Kevin. Um, you know, maybe like I, we don't know whether Kevin tried to get traditional form of distribution for for Kilroy and it was just like rebuffed. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed Jay and Silent Bob reboot not nearly as much as the original, but like it was okay. It was kind of what I was expecting. It was certainly better than the garbage that was Yoga Hosers a few years ago. Um, so I don't know if Kevin felt like this was his last route, so to speak. Uh, I don't know why Netflix doesn't just give this guy a deal. And I'm not talking about a Netflix, an Adam Sandler type, you know, mega deal. But like Kevin Smith has a loyal fan base, just like Adam Sandler. In fact, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap there. So like, why would you not just make Netflix the new home of, of Kevin Smith? And there's just so much you can do with Kevin Smith. I really think Kevin's a very versatile kind of personality where he can do, he can direct movies, he can star in movies he can do stand-up he can host comic book specials and stuff like that like he can do after shows i mean kevin smith is really 
talented and I love listening to him um, and, you know, and listening and listening because he's a talker. God bless Kevin. But uh, I just this did not sit well with me, the, the NFT thing. And I hope that it uh, I hope that it I hope it doesn't go well for him and I hope it doesn't spark you know, uh, a chain of people doing this. I mean, if a traditional distributor picks it up as an NFT and then releases it as a normal movie, sure. What, you know, what's, what's the difference? Um, good, good for Kevin, if that's the case. But uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just felt like a fucking PR thing, you know, movie, the first NFT movie or something like that. Forget it. Uh, we got a bunch of like Spielberg related stuff. Just now Mads Mikkelsen cast in Indiana Jones 5 alongside Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Harrison Ford. Um, yeah, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge thing was last week. <coughs> really made me want to go watch Fleabag, which is still the show that I have never watched. So I don't like get the Phoebe Waller-Bridge of it all. I mean, I know, you know, she, she did Killing Eve, which I really love. Um, but like, I just, I don't know enough about Phoebe Waller-Bridge to know if this makes sense, you know, her being in the Indiana Jones 5 movie. I'm not an Indiana Jones guy, I'll tell you that right now. I remember when, uh, what was it, what's the last one? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was coming out and I was like, all right, I'm gonna see this movie. I'm gonna watch the, fir the, uh, the first three Indiana Joneses again. Uh, I made it a movie and a half in. Yep, I watched Raiders and then I watched, I think I got halfway through Temple of Doom and was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Don't need to watch Last Crusade again. Don't need to see Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I still have not seen. Uh, will I see Indiana Jones 5? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I, I may not because I just don't care. Uh, but I do like James Mangold, you know? And so if he can make this thing a little bit more fun and fast paced and sort of like the... I don't know, like rickety kind of adventure movie. I felt like Crystal Skull looked like, at least in the trailers. Maybe I'll check it out. Now, I, I really do like Mads Mikkelsen a lot. And maybe I'll watch Fleabag, you know, between now and next July and I'll love it. And I'll be like, I got to see Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this movie. But yeah, I'm not like, I'm, I'm not doing cartwheels to see Indiana Jones 5. I really think that's a very overrated franchise. But I know I'm crazy. I'm also the guy who thinks Back to the Future is overrated. Sue me. Uh, Spielberg also cast Paul Dano as a character inspired by his own father in, in the movie based on his own uh, childhood. Um, that I can see. I can totally see, you know, Paul Dano with the glasses or as sort of the patriarch of this, this Jewish family. Uh, I think Paul Dano is a tremendous actor and, and I can't wait to see his, his take on the Riddler and the Batman. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I totally dig it. I'm between Paul Dano and Seth Rogen, like I am, I am very much excited for Steven's next movie. Um, I'm just wondering if there's like gonna be like a plot or if it's just kind of like a coming of age kind of thing, like a go with the flower. Tom Holland lined up a new Apple series. Um, it's an anthology show. He's gonna be playing Billy Milligan, the first person acquitted of a crime due to having multiple personality disorder, which is now known as DID. Uh, this sounds like an interesting role for him. Um, not surprised he'd wind up back at Apple, you know, after Cherry, which I'm sure, I mean, I don't know how, what, like, well, I don't know what the numbers were like on Cherry, if that did decently for them, 
which for Apple, you know, is they're, they're kind of operating on a different scale than everybody. But yeah, I don't really know if we've gotten any numbers for that one. Maybe it's just a little bit uh, too early. Um, Tom Holland doing a TV show. That makes sense to me, since I think that his movie star credibility has taken a real hit over the last couple months. Uh, so you know what? You get back out there and just just do some good work. Do some good work, and, and that'll bring you better movie roles. Uh, Chris McKay has come on to direct the Renfield movie. This is uh, after he's wrapped The Tomorrow War, right? The, the Chris Pratt film that's coming out this summer, um, surprisingly. Uh, it just seems like that mo whole thing like happened very quickly, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Chris McKay also did the Lego Batman movie. This Renfield movie, it was going to be Dexter Fletcher. I, I feel like he's really kind of lost some momentum over the last year. He kind of hit the ground running after Rocketman and lined up all these things. And now it's like, well, is, is the Saint real? Renfield didn't happen. Like, what's, what's going on with Dexter Fletcher? Uh, Chris McKay is probably a better fit for this anyways. I still think a big part of this comes down to casting. Um, trying to think, like... And I'd, I'd always, I'd heard like people like Adam Driver and Channing Tatum for this movie. I'm sure McKay will go in, in you know, his own way with it. But uh, either of those could be interesting. Um, all right, we talked about Kevin Smith. Uh, a bunch of just like, you know, before we just get to like the the, the straight news stuff, let's let's see here. So Dana Walden says ABC passed on pilots for not being inclusive enough. I mean, I get that we're, you know, trying to foster inclusion. And that's obviously a great thing. I mean, good for ABC. But does every project need to, you know, be, be the, the rainbow coalition where there's, you know, uh, black people and white people and Asian people and Latino people? Does every show need to be this now so that they can be considered inclusive? Does every, you know, everybody need a, a trans character or, or an LGBTQ character? Like, I don't know. Like, if you're passing on pilots that are perfectly good pilots and great shows with great scripts and they just happen to center on, like, straight white people, like, I just don't know how this makes good business sense. I really don't. Like, why is there not room for both things? Uh, I, I, I just, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, Walden cited an example of receiving a script centered on a white family with the assumption that the diversity would come from the, would come with the neighbors. Pass, she said. That's not going to get on the air anymore because that's not what our audience wants. That's not a reflection of our audience, and I feel good about the direction we're moving. Now listen, that's fair. You've gotten to this position at ABC, and, and you're calling the shots, and you got to trust your own instincts. The whole, like, is, that's not a reflection of our audience. Does every show need to reflect the audience? Like, I, I realize everybody wants to see themselves up there, but, like, I don't need to do that in every show. I just need to know that there's a show, a show with, with, with a straight white guy on it, right? There, I, you know, that show's for me. I mean, like, this is just so stupid. It's such a stupid way of looking at art. Well, this show's about a straight white guy, so this show is for this person. Like, well, okay, what's the story about? Like, who cares what color or race the characters are? This is so dumb. Just give me a good story and I'll watch it, whether it's all white people or all black people. It doesn't matter. Speaking of stuff like that, you know, 
Angelica Jade Bastian uh, wrote a, a pretty great review of them. I disagreed with her, uh, but it's very, very well written and she makes some excellent points and, and argues them very, very well. I mean, I think she's a great critic uh, over at Vulture. So I didn't really have a problem with the review, but it was her tweets. It was the tweets putting the, story, the, the, the review out there that I took issue with. You know, she's like, to every critic who praised this show even slightly, I want you to take a hard look in the mirror about your relationship to anti-blackness, to anti because this ain't good art or good politics. This is a travesty in which black folks are capitulating to the very system they should critique. Um, and she also wrote, right, there, there is something about how non-black, but especially white critics write about black art that makes it clear that they think they're being a good ally when really not only is that not the case, uh, they're, they're, being they're also being terrible at their fucking job as critics. I don't wanna be made to feel like a racist because I enjoyed them, which is a show created by and starring black people. That doesn't mean, oh, okay, well, if you're watching entertainment with black people in it or, from, or created by black people, that means you're not a racist. Like that's not how that works. I'm sure that there's a lot of people, which is fucked up to say, who are gonna watch them and they're gonna root for the white people to get this black family out of their neighborhood, which is crazy. But like those people are racist anyways, okay? I like, I, it's just like absurd to say, if you praise the show even slightly, take a hard look in the mirror about your relationship to anti-blackness. I thought this was a good story. Um, one that, you know, we had, I mean, we've seen stories like this before. We've never really seen it done like this, particularly like a, a, a 10 episode TV show, a TV show. I don't think it was perfect. I think it was too long. I think the supernatural elements, um, sort of made it veer off course. Like it's the same thing with like Lovecraft country. Like to me, there's nothing scarier than real racism. You're not going to scare me with these fucking supernatural elements. Like, the Dale Dickey stuff and, and Allison Pill, like there's nothing more terrifying than that. Uh, and, and I think that this probably just should have been like an eight, even a six or eight episode show about, about just like that. Like it, it didn't need all the supernatural elements, but like, I, I just, I don't think it makes me a racist to say I enjoyed this this story or, or, or you know, the, the way it was told, like the aesthetic. I thought it was, very well shot. I don't care if there were a bunch of like white directors on it and there was only one black director and the, and the black director who happened to be uh, Janice Bravo who did, um, who did Zola. Like that was the, the fucking crazy episode. Like the, the one that really upset a lot of people and the violence in this is upsetting. I mean, it's an upsetting show about upsetting things and, and horrible, terrible people. Uh, but like, I, that's the thing I just can't get behind is the making, being made to feel guilty or racist even for enjoying, enjoying a piece of, of black created entertainment, you know? Um, and like the other thing is, so, you know, I think, uh, I, I, I want to say, yeah, we hired a, 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 female, uh, you know, black critic, a, a critic of color. Um, at, at Collider to write the review and it was a positive review. Now, you know, uh, backlash has since sort of uh, started, you know, sparked around the show, but it's like, 
I think there's a real sensitivity around TV editors. Like, okay, do we have a white person review this show? Can a white person, you know, review black art? Um, or and do we always need a or do we always need a black critic to weigh in on on black art? And and like, you know, I just it, it's a very interesting thing right now because you you definitely see that. And, and like, you know, if I was a black critic. I don't know that I necessarily want to just be called in to, to uh, you know, critique black films or black TV shows. Like, I just, I really do feel like all this stuff about, well, you're black and, and you need to do this and you're white and you need to stay away from that. Like, it's what's ruining the country. It is what is making us more divided. Okay, because it's it's just putting people in, in silos and, and uh, I just, I'm not, I don't like it. I do not like the way we are trending don't like it. And, I, and I, again, as far as this review goes, I fully uh, re respect Angelica's take on it. She is absolutely entitled to her opinion. And I'm sure she is not alone. Um, but I, I just don't think I should be made to feel like an asshole because I, I would give the show like a, a, a B, probably a B or even a B plus. Um, here's another story that I took issue with, like the, the Daily Beast Casey Affleck story where it's like daily, Casey Affleck is, is, trying to make is, is trying to make a comeback or making a comeback you know despite all these sexual uh, harassment claims against him like this shit has been litigated and i'm not saying that like we need to forget it but like you know uh, it just seems like the depth of the daily beast whole model like are we just supposed to forget about this celebrity doing this terrible thing we need to hold them accountable like okay that's good hold them accountable but like do we need to just like bring it up every single movie that, that you know, this person, you know, uh, releases going forward until the end of time. Here's, here's like where I took issue with it. Um, so it says, by largely ignoring the previous claims, uh, Casey Adlick has been allowed to come across, allowed to come across as an insightful brooding artist on a journey of self-discovery and on the precipice of reclaiming his delayed stardom. By the way, we're talking about movies, Our Friend, which I have not seen and I've heard good things about, I wanted to see it, Every Breath You Take, which was terrible, and The World to Come, which no one is even going to see. Um, so like that's the delayed stardom. Like this guy was about to be put into a bunch of studio projects and now the studios aren't working with him. So like he has been punished. Don't give me like the, he's on the precipice of reclaiming his delayed stardom because of these three direct-to-video movies. This is one thing that drives me nuts because people don't have like the gauge of like, what is this project? Where does it fall in the hierarchy of projects in Hollywood? They just say, he's in a movie, he's a movie star. No. Uh, so anyways, they continue, and while it can be argued that the settled lawsuits are more than a decade old and that Affleck has acknowledged them, there hasn't been a true examination of his efforts to right his wrongs or an in-depth interview with Affleck probing the allegations. It's really only his side that the public gets to hear too. That's nonsense. The public gets to hear, forget sides, okay, because those women made a decision, right? They, they made a decision to settle to take the money in exchange for signing an NDA or silence or whatever it is. And you may have thoughts on, on that decision, whether that's right or wrong, but that is their decision you have to respect it. Okay, they could have put their side out there. They didn't want to, they wanted to take the money. 
Meanwhile, it's not just his his side the public is hearing, because every time he presents his side, the media weighs in to remind everybody about the other side and everything that happened. But here's the, the, the real point of this. There hasn't been a true examination of his efforts to right his wrongs or an in-depth interview with Affleck probing the allegations. Casey Affleck does not owe us an interview in which he goes through every single thing, negative thing that anyone has ever said about him so that he can offer you know, his, his side or explanation to it. And as far as there hasn't been a true examination of his efforts to right his wrongs, how the fuck do you know that? Not everything plays out in the private eye, in the, in the public sphere, right? Or on Twitter for you, for, for your enjoyment, okay? How do you know that Casey Affleck has not been in therapy five days a week talking about this and examining his efforts to right his wrongs, okay? How do you know that Casey Affleck hasn't given money to various organizations or, or you know, volunteered uh, his time and energy working? Like, you just, you just don't know. They're all, there are all these assumptions fucking made and it drives me insane. I mean, there hasn't been a true examination of his efforts to right his wrongs. Casey Affleck may stay up every night. It may keep him awake at night. The things that, that, that happened on that, on that, you know, set, which was, even though it was obviously a fucking joke shoot and the whole time your lead actor's getting bombed and Casey Affleck's fucking drunk out of his mind, right? I get where those women were coming from because, you know, that's a, that's, this is, we're still making a movie. This is a film shoot and you are expected to be professional. And I do not condone Casey Affleck's behavior on that set, you know, crawling into bed with women in the middle, uh, you know, crew members in the middle of the night. Like that's, that's fucked up. And, and, and listen, it's not surprising uh, to me, given how much alcohol I believe was probably consumed on that, that set. I'm not, I don't really drink, not a big drinker. And it's the behavior that I've seen from just about everybody who does drink for the last, my, my, my last 20 years on this planet. Okay. Um, I think alcohol makes people do fucked up shit. Um, but no, I don't think Casey Affleck is some kind of monster who needs to like pay for his mistakes uh, in every article until the end of time. Like it just, I'm sure he has some real regrets, you know, but, but just because he doesn't, and I think that he has, but just because he doesn't go in depth about this step, offer an in-depth interview or these, a public examination of his efforts doesn't mean that privately he's not struggling with that stuff. And, and that's the shit that, that, that just drives me crazy. Oh, th this actor, he's a straight actor playing a gay character. Like, you know, he doesn't, uh, he, he can't relate to us. He, why is he telling our stories? Like, this should be a gay actor playing a gay character. Well, you don't know what this actor has done. He presents as straight because he has a wife and a family, but you don't know if he's done gay, you know, had gay sex in his life or what, you know, what is in his heart or anything. Look at fucking Colton Underwood. The Bachelor who came out this week is gay. Like, people like to think that we know everything about these people and we don't. And I, I just love to hear a reporter acknowledge that for once, you know, that, that, that the answers weren't found on fucking Wikipedia or IMDb Pro. Anyways, uh, tons of, of news to get to. So let's just fucking rip through it. Jorge Landeborg Jr., I believe it is, and Toast and Cole, starring in the House Party remake that LeBron James is producing. Cobra Kai's Josh Heald directing an ancient aliens movie for Legendary and, uh, and I believe Netflix based on the History Channel show. I never never watched it. I'm not a big like, are there aliens among us type show? It's, uh, I'm not really into that stuff. My brother is though. Nia Long joining Storm Reid. 
in Searching. Two, Mark Hamill to play Burt Kreischer's father in the legendary comedy The Machine from director Peter Atencio. Jacob Tremblay joining Peter Dinklage in the Toxic Avenger movie. Salma Hayek joining Ridley Scott's House of Gucci movie. Rafi Cassidy and Sam and Mae Novola joining Noah, Noah Baumbach's White Noise. Uh, those are all, you know, kind of like minor castings and stuff. I mean, the Sam and Mae Novola thing is interesting. Um, they are the children of Alessandro Novola and Emily Mortimer. And I was, I was tracking uh, that story and then Emily Mortimer kind of just let the cat out of the bag in an interview and, and was, you know, she was a proud mom. So saying, wow, my, both my kids got cast in a Noah Baumbach movie. That's awesome. Uh, Rafi Cassidy, former uh, Collider up-and-comer of the month for Vox Lux. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm definitely looking forward to this Baumbach movie. I, I love Noah Baumbach. I love Marriage Story. And this one's going to be um, Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver. Uh, yeah, Toxic Avenger. I never really got that. Um, Brene Zellweger doing uh, Michael Patrick King's golf comedy, The Back Nine. Not what I would have expected as her uh, follow-up to the Oscar-winning Judy but I guess it's hard out there. Uh, Amanda Stenberg and Maria Bakalova in Bodies, 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 potentially with Pete Davidson, who's also circling a role. That's the A24 horror movie. Uh, very, very upset about uh, how that story went down. I was, uh, I was, I was definitely on that for, for a good week before the, that hit. And I know uh, Deadline was probably tracking for a while, but that one, that, that one hurt. Wanted, wanted to drop that Bakalova story. A24... You know, I think they went on on Twitter and sort of said every generation deserves its own scream. Uh, those are those, them. Them are fighting words. Okay, let's just not get ahead of ourselves here. A twenty four calling bodies, bodies, bodies. The next scream. Um, I know everybody loves to think A twenty four has its its finger on the pulse of horror, but I'm pretty mixed on on its uh, on its taste over there. So we'll see. I've seen a lot of movies over the years build themselves as the new scream and it didn't exactly work out uh david ayer became a buyer this week he got you know a bunch of funding and he's going to be you know investing in projects developing his own slate that kind of stuff um hugh uh, hugh jackman and, and laura dern starring in the sun this is the next uh, movie from florian zeller who did the father nice guest for hugh jackman there Rami Youssef joining Emma Stone in Poor Things. Uh, now, I'd heard Mark Ruffalo for that movie. I wonder if Rami Youssef is sort of taking that role or if this is a, a different role, leaving the door open for, for Ruffalo to, to uh, show up, potentially. I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure. I don't, don't have a, a, the greatest breakdown for that project. Uh, Steven Yen joining Jordan Peele's new movie. I think that's awesome for him. I, 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 you know, he was in the, the Twilight Zone reboot that, that Jordan Peele produced. Uh, so it's looking like it's going to be Stephen Yen and Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya, uh, who is still in negotiations. Again, I think that's, that, that casting is really just a formality. Um, I think they're probably just waiting to see if Daniel wins the Oscar in a few weeks, because if he does, you know, his, his uh, salary is going to have to go up. Liam Neeson, Guy Pierce, Monica Bellucci, and my boy Harold Torres, another former collider up-and-comer of the month for 000. They are going to be in an action thriller titled Memory from Martin Campbell, director of Casino Royale and GoldenEye. Listen, it's Liam Neeson as an assassin with a very particular set of skills, blah, 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 blah. You've heard this logline before. The guy's suffering memory loss. He's confused. He doesn't know what the fuck is going on. I'm sure, you know... Uh, there will be a crooked cop or law enforcement agent uh, somewhere along the lines. Monica Bellucci playing like the, the villainous um, 
tech mogul. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Because when you think tech mogul, you got to think Monica Bellucci. Whatever. It, 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 it's a Liam Neeson movie. It's just like all the other Liam Neeson movies. I'll probably end up watching it and enjoying it just like I did Honest Thief. And I'm actually really looking forward to The Marksman. <coughs> Natalie Portman starring in The Days of Abandonment uh, on, on HBO. It's an HBO movie based on an Elena Ferrante novel. Uh, didn't sound all that interesting to me. I'm more of like a give me give me a good crime movie, you know, for, for Natalie Portman, kind of like Kate Winslet has coming up, which we're going to be talking about. Um, Lisa Cholodenko, speaking of crime shows, directing the first two episodes of The Girl from Plainville on Hulu. That's the Elle Fanning as Michelle Carter texting suicide case, you know, where the girl was uh, encouraging her teenage boyfriend to kill himself. Cholodenko, great director. <laughs> Looking forward to that project. A lot of directors were lining up work, right? Sam Mendes doing Empire of the Light, a romantic drama with Olivia Coleman, centered around a, a movie theater. It's an interesting follow-up, uh, you know, to 1917. Uh, Mark Romanek. It's funny, you know, I I, I take some, I take my notes and, and text edit here, which kind of does the auto, uh, you know, spelling corrections and stuff. So it says Mark Romance instead of Mark Romanek. Mark Romance directing Motherland. Uh, which I believe is a, a, a horror movie. Um, he has not done a movie since Never Let Me Go. I mean, Romanek is fucking talented. Like, Never Let Me Go may be a masterpiece. May. It's, uh, it's pretty great. It definitely hit me hard when I, when I saw it. Um, the guy's flirted with a bunch of projects over the years, like Boston Strangler and, and the Overlook Hotel. Uh, so it's nice to see him commit to something again let's hope it actually works out and gets before cameras i didn't love his amazon series tales from the loop that he worked on uh but but uh you know i'd love to see hbo do do a a series based on fucking the boston strangler like that's a project that's just sitting up there at warner brothers like why wouldn't you do a fucking tv show about that it's crazy why do i have to spell things out for these executives uh, elsewhere, uh, Joe Cornish signing on to do Mark Miller's, uh, Mark Miller's Starlight, which is like a, a space hero movie. I, I, to me, Joe Cornish is two for two, you know, Attack the Block was great. I really like what he did with the kid, uh, kid who would be king. Um, and even though I got a bad feeling about uh, Mark Miller's Jupiter's Legacy show on Netflix, I, I really do. I, I like Kick-Ass. I like Kingsman. Uh, I like wanted, you know, like he's got his, he, he knows what works on, on, on screen. And so here's hoping Joe Corners can make something out of uh, the artist's starlight. Brad Furman lined up another project. He's going to write and direct the Pistol Pete movie that uh, Steve Nash has been producing. The, the project's been in, in, in development for like the last six years. Uh, but I think Brad Furman is uh, a good guy to get it across the finish line. I, I think he's an underrated director. I think he's a pretty solid filmmaker. Caught a bad break with, with City of Lies with the delay and the Johnny Depp of it all. But, uh, you know, I like The Lincoln Lawyer. I really like The Infiltrator with Brian Cranston. I, you know, maybe he could make something special out of this. I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with Pistol Pete's story or why it's so deserving of uh, the big screen treatment, but it, it sounds, you know, having talked to a few people about this project, it sounds like, like it is. Uh, were there any other big director things? Jordan Voight Roberts uh, directing a Gundam, Gundam movie for Netflix and Legendary. I don't know this property. This is like a, a Thundercats kind of thing where it's like, you know what? Have fun, get in touch with your inner child. I, I, I really like Jordan. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I don't know what this Gundam thing is. It's not for me, clearly. Naomi Watts starring in the Goodnight Mommy remake for Amazon. Wasn't a big fan of the original Goodnight Mommy. You know, Naomi Watts sort of did this kind of thing before with Funny Games, which I liked. I don't think that the Funny Games remake was as good as the original, but that's okay. This movie, though, there's room for improvement. Uh, and Matt Sobel is an interesting director. I didn't love his first feature, Take Me to the River, but it showed that he had some chops. Uh, and, and, you know, may, I don't think that this has to be like a shot for shot remake. I hope that he, you know, puts a little twist on it. You know, you got, you got to shake it up. Jennifer Jason Lee uh, booked the lead in Hunters season two alongside Logan Lerman. You know, uh, I don't know if you've seen season one, but Al Pacino may or may not survive that first season. So they were looking to replace him and bring in a kind of heavy hitter or at least someone with some real, you know, acting chops. I believe that they went to people like Helen Mirren and Glenn Close first. Um, so I was a little surprised when it, when it went to Jennifer Jason Lee, considering she's quite a bit younger than those actresses. But you know what? She's every bit as formidable. And uh, she was amazing as Daisy Domergue and in Hateful Eight. And I can't wait to see her hunting some fucking Nazis. Michael Sarah joins Amy Schumer's uh, new series, Life and Beth. Edgar Ramirez uh, joins uh, the Borderlands movie as the villain. And I wrote something about Edgar. Um, you know, I, I took Edgar to task for some of his choices because I, I just felt like seeing him in Carlos, like I, I was like, this guy's just a fucking, he's gonna be a huge movie star. He's awesome. Um, and I felt, even though I liked Yesterday, which was, you know, a kind of charming family film on Netflix, I still felt a little embarrassed watching fucking Carlos the Jackal like wrestle around with like bubble bath. Um, so I, I like that he's going to be working with Eli Roth and this star-studded cast and what is shaping up to be a pretty big movie for, for Lionsgate. Um, yeah, I just, I, I hope it's better than the last few movies that I've seen Edgar Ramirez in. Uh, Kate Blanchett starring on, starring, uh, signing on to star in Tar which is Todd Field's first movie in 15 years. Like shit, we were just talking about Mark, Mark Romanek not working in a decade. Todd Field hasn't made a movie since Little Children in 2006, which earned him an Oscar nomination. It's crazy to think about that. I know he's really tried to, to get the creed of violence off the ground. And, and last year, I'm pretty sure he was close with Daniel Craig, or maybe not last year because it was the pandemic, but he'd been close to getting creed of violence off the ground with Daniel Craig. And of course, last week we saw the news about the Knives Out sequels, right? That's going to be Daniel Craig's focus for the next year or two, which bumps creative violence even further. And so maybe Todd feels just like, all right, I got to, I got to, you know, pivot to it, to another project. But I love the idea of those two uh, working together. Todd Field is an excellent, excellent director. Um, Benny Safdie joining, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. We scooped that one on Collider. To me, that's just interesting that like he's really lining up a lot of acting projects lately, right? He's got the Obi-Wan show. He's going to be starring in that Showtime series, The Curse, that he's uh, doing with, with Emma Stone and, and Nathan Fielder. Um, he's in Pieces of a Woman Now. Like You're just seeing a lot more Benny Safdie. I even enjoyed the, the Goldman versus Silverman short film that he did with, with Sandler. But uh, needless to say, this guy has larger aspirations than just like you know directing movies with his brother. Um, he, he wants to be famous. He wants to be an actor. And, and uh, I really like what he brought to Good Time. So I'm down to see more of him. Although him playing Rachel McAdams' husband. Wow. L lucky guy. 
Nick Offerman cast as Uncle Milty in the Pam and Tommy series. This, uh, Uncle Milty was the porn impresario who, who helped Rand, the, uh, the electrician who seals the tape, who's going to be played by Seth Rogen. He helped Rand distribute it, you know, because once you steal a sex tape, you got to get it out there. Otherwise, what good is it? Uh, I love that casting for him. You know, he's, Uncle Milty was, was humorous and also horrifying at times. And I, and I think Nick Offerman can, can uh, deliver just that, that balance. Um, what else? There are a few others. Kevin James cast as Sean Payton in Home Team, which is like a, a Netflix movie I'd been tracking. Of course, I got scooped by Peter King, of all people, the, the, the football guru. Um, but this is not just like Sean Payton coaching the Saints or whatever. This is Sean Payton has been suspended for a year after the Bounty Gate scandal. And he goes, uh, you know, his son, has, his kids have missed him, you know, because he's been busy for, for most of the year coaching the Saints. Uh, which, you know, which has got to be a tough, demanding job being a, being a football coach and just staying up all hours of the night watching tape. And, and I mean, it's like you have 55 other children, you know. Um, and so he, he took that year off uh, and decided to bond with his, his you know, sixth grade son and, and coach the boys uh, sixth grade team. So I'm very curious what the tone will be. I don't think it's just going to be like, I hope it's not all just like good times and, and high fives and back slaps. I think it there's going to be a little bit of adversity along the way because, you know, Sean Payton was suspended. Like he did something that was not uh, seen as a good thing in the eyes of the, the, the league, which of course, everyone in the NFL, they were, they were putting, you know, doing the bounty system. It's just that Sean Payton kind of got caught with it. Um, but I'm sure he gets a lot of shit and his son is now in the position where he's feels forced to defend him, even though he's kind of resentful of, of, of his dad a little bit. I don't know. It sounds like it could be interesting. And, and I do, um, I, I, I do like Kevin James in this role. Uh, and Adam Sandler is going to be producing this one as well. Netflix also nabbed Benedict Cumberbatch's The 39 Steps limited series. Neon nabbed the actor, the Duke Johnson project with, with uh, Ryan Gosling, which I always assumed would be a live action movie. Although now I understand that maybe it was David Poland who said he couldn't get Neon to confirm whether it was live action or like a, an animated or possibly stop motion animated project. Um, which, which gives me pause. Cause if it was live action, you would just say it's, it's live action. Um, so yeah, that, listen, that was always my impression of this project, but I suppose with Duke Johnson at the helm, you never know. And now Charlie Kaufman is also involved as an EP. Uh, Justin Timberlake's going to be playing gong show host, Chuck Barris in an Apple series, I believe. I mean, his, his story was told once before in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, um, but I haven't gone back to that movie in a long time. I don't know. This could be interesting. Justin Timberlake as, as Chuck Barris. I don't know that I need to like a full series about it, but uh, you never know. I, I, I find Justin Timberlake pretty entertaining and charming, although I never did watch uh, Palmer, even though I, I heard good things about it. Uh, I think it came out, Michael B. Jordan had said, there's not going to be any Sil Sylvester Stallone in Creed three, no Rocky this time around which I think is, is, is the right move for that franchise, even though it won't really feel like part of the Rocky franchise without Rocky. I think it's time to, to see if Creed can stand on his own two feet without the Rocky character supporting him. Um, and yeah, Michael's going to be directing this one himself. So it was uh, his call. Uh, and Lucy Liu casts as Helen Mirren's villainous sister in Shazam Fury of the Gods. I'm sorry. It's very tough for me to get excited for, for that sequel. I didn't think the first one was bad. I just can barely, I, I just remember bad villain stuff. And I mean, the kids were, were charming enough. 
but uh, yeah, I can't get too excited for for Shazam too. Um, wanted to do some some quick congratulations before uh, doing the, the the trailers and reviews piece. Um, congrats to first of all to Evan Langweiler on his promotion at Universal. He's now going to be calling the shots on, on the film side as far as PR goes. Um, love working with Evan over there. Also really like working with Erica Gray, who launched her own company, The Spotlight Company. She represents people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Elizabeth Moss. So congrats to Erica as well. And congrats to Jesse Henderson, uh, who, who headed over to Apple this week. I think Jesse is a really smart executive um, with good taste. She was, she was Paul Feig's right hand for a long time and then went over to HBO Max. But, you know, there were just so many layers of bureaucracy above her. She kind of, you know, it kind of tied her hands. So hopefully um, she's able to do a little bit more with, with Apple. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see more comedies. I think that's where her head, you know, she has a good head for comedies. I think she was pretty, uh, you know, very much behind the heat. The Paul Feig movie. And um, yeah, I like, I just don't see enough comedies being made. So hopefully that's part of her, her mission over there. Oh, I also want to talk about Will Smith, right? Will Smith pulled emancipation out of Georgia this week. That was a big, uh, a, a, a big decision and one that I can get behind. I mean, I realize that it punishes a lot of um, the crew members who live in Georgia, most of whom are people of color. There's a lot of um, black people who get their start on productions in Georgia. And if, and if productions just, you know, leave Georgia en masse, a lot of those people will find it difficult to break into the industry. Like at, at Atlanta is an important pipeline as far as getting people uh, people of color that those those you know jobs on on film and TV shoots. So it, it, there is a downside to it, but when you look at that movie and how it you know it's basically you know it's about someone emancipating themselves from slavery. It obviously deals with racism. It's tough to stay in a state if you don't have to um, that has enacted these, these voting laws. And I, and I know some people have said, well, they're not as restrictive as they're made out to be. And, you know, the liberal media is giving it a bad rap and blah, 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 like, the, you know, but I, I, I don't know. Any, any way you slice it, like even like handing out water or food in the line and, and God knows those lines can be eight or 10 hours long in some, you know, uh, rural parts of that state or whatever, like, it's now a misdemeanor or something like that to, to hand out water and a line because it could influence someone's vote. Give me a fucking break, dude. Like, what are these fucking laws? I mean, I, 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 I'm not like a, I, I agree in principle with the idea that, yeah, you should have an ID to vote. But I also know that there's a lot of people living in this country who don't have ID and it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to vote. They're still a part of this country just because just they're not registered with the DMV. So, uh, yeah, the, the voting laws and, and those are new restrictions and stuff that didn't sit well with me at all. And, and I, I have to applaud Will Smith for, for and Antoine Fuqua for doing what they did and Apple for, for backing them, you know, because it's probably going to cost them an extra 20 million. Uh, a lot of trailers this week, Fast 9. It's exactly what you think. Crazy stunts that defy gravity that, that make no sense. Um, you know, Vin Diesel can, can jump out of a car at, at 200 miles an hour and just land on the ground. No, like spinning no sliding you know tearing the, the skin off his face he's just i'm good uh yeah what do we expect god i'll tell you though Char Charlize theron's haircut is there like a contest to try to give her the just 
terrible haircuts in this franchise is that is that the only way she agreed to be in it it was like i'll do it but you have to let me look absolutely ridiculous uh army of the dead trailer i, I think that looks like a fun movie i mean that that's what people want to see around you know mid-may memorial day weekend around then Zack snyder vegas dave batista gun zombies fuck you fuck yeah sign me up uh flashback little uh dylan o'brien Micah Monroe thriller. I like this young cast. I like Emery Cohn and Kier Gilchrist. And all these people have like worked together uh, before in, in some way or another. Um, well, movie, movie looked okay. It reminded me of, of Synchronic, basically. There's, there's like a, a mystery drug and you don't know what it's going to do to you. And people are having weird hallucinations and visions. And, you know, I, it, it, I don't think it's the most groundbreaking thing. Maybe last year I would have said that it was uh but whatever you know i'll probably check it out on vod right probably i'll check everything out on vod uh profile i thought that was a great trailer that's the timor bekmambatov uh screen life thriller where like this you know journalist goes undercover to try to get some insight into the like terrorist recruitment process and then finds it you know finds herself sort of falling in love with with the terrorist recruiter who also becomes hip to her game and who she is I thought that was a great trailer, like fantastic. Can't wait to see it. Eat Wheaties is a very weird indie that with Tony Hale becoming obsessed with former classmate Elizabeth Banks. It's Elizabeth Banks. I mean, she's either the perfect celebrity for something like that because she's not like a gigantic A-lister and it makes sense that someone who went to school with her maybe could become obsessed with her and start stalking her. I don't know if she's like a, the perfect person for this movie or just like, we're making movies about people stocking Elizabeth Banks now. Like this is getting a little ridiculous. Whatever. Again, that's another very, very low budget indie that, that has a, a fun little cast. Uh, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard got a trailer this week. I walked out of that movie at CinemaCon. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's tough being in Vegas watching a movie that you know is going to come out in four months. If the movie's, if you're not loving the movie, it's tough to just sit there and it's like, eh, I, I could go enjoy Vegas right now. Uh, so I walked out of that. I didn't have any regrets. Don't care about finishing it. The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard looks very different. It looks much more action comedy-ish. I don't know. It just um, it, it looks more like a more fun movie. Maybe because it looks like it scaled back Sam Jackson a little bit and, and added Salma Hayek instead and, and elevated... Ryan, I, I don't know. It just looked a little different. Do I think I'm going to see it? Probably not, but whatever. The movie I am going to see is The Dry, uh, Australian, an Australian crime thriller starring Eric Bana. That had a trailer today. I thought it looked great. Um, yeah, that, that's the kind of shit I'm into. And every now and then, every few years, like, a, you know, Australia sends over a really good crime movie. Um, this movie did really well during the pandemic at the Australian box office. It's already in like the top 15 of all time over there. So IFC Films picked it up. I'm down to check it out. Reviews. Uh, okay. I wrote a review of Moment of Truth this uh, last week, which was, uh, it, it is on IMDb TV, which I know what you're thinking. Why am I watching IMDb TV? Um, it is a free streaming service owned by Amazon. So there's that for starters. You don't need to pay for it. That's a pretty good five-part crime series um, about the murder of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan, and the two teenagers like who, who you know, were, were charged with it. Uh, and, and it was kind of just like a sad story of these young best friends roped up 
not not roped into this crime because they obviously knew what they were fucking doing. Um, but just yes, I don't know. Seeing seeing these two best friends kind of pointing the finger at each other, and and one of them ends up having to to pay for it uh, quite a lot longer than the other. It was it was interesting. There was a lot that I did not know about that case, which you know it was just kind of still fascinating. Twenty five years later, uh, them. Like I said, I, I probably would give that show a B. I, I really liked the style of it, like the, the fucking opening credits and um, just like the way that the, 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 even this, the, the title came up. Uh, I thought the performances were all really good across the board. The, the family at its center were, was fantastic. I thought Allison Pill was good. Pat Healy, super creepy uh, as a racist neighbor. Brooke Smith, great character actress. She's the, she's the girl in the pit in Silence of the Lambs. She plays like this, you know, sort of uh, evil real estate person, if you will. Um, I just think that the, the show lost its way when, when it got a little too supernatural in the later episodes. I think it didn't have to necessarily be 10 episodes. Um, yeah, but, but it was, it is stomach turning at, at, at points. It is, it's tough to watch. And I get why, you know, black audiences may not want to watch it because it just, it, it, Angelica had a point in her review where it's like, this feels like torture porn in a sense. Like it's just, it's degradation porn, I think she called it. Um, I I wouldn't go quite that far because I think if there is artistic and creative merit to the series, but I get it. I I, I see where she's coming from. I'm loving Mighty Ducks Game Changers. I'll tell you that right now. That might be like my favorite show on TV at the moment. Um, that kid, the podcaster kid, is just gold. They give him all the best lines, but he he delivers. He hits a home run every single time out. So if you're not watching the Mighty Duck show, it is not just for kids. It is a delight, much like Ted Lasso. And then, um, God, I didn't really I didn't really write down like the mailbag questions and stuff like that. So we'll we'll do that again next week. We'll do a, a super size mailbag. You have my word because this this podcast is already running long since it's got two weeks of headlines and, and some some stories that called for a little bit of extra love and attention. But I want to end the show today with the Mayor of Easttown review. Uh, I am filing that review uh, today, right after this podcast tapes, and it'll probably go up on Friday. So you, you may you may get this review uh, on the podcast before the, the, the print edition hits. Um, but I, I, I wanted to talk about it and today's the day I got to talk about it before the show premieres on Sunday. So here we are. Uh, I loved it. Absolutely loved mayor of Easttown. Thought it was fantastic. I've watched the first five episodes twice because I watched it with my dad and his girlfriend again. Um, and I wanted to, to see it twice just to, to help me with my review because it is a very rich, uh, portrait of this, this community in, in crisis and this woman in genuine despair um you know it, it heaps on the tragedies but it never feels like tragedy porn uh, i think it has a lot of in common with hbo's i know this much is true which was also sort of this blue collar working class type of show and, and a lot of people in pain from a lot of different things anchored by this incredible star performance and, and just like you've seen mark ruffalo clean up at the globes and the emmys and, and just win all the awards uh, you know, for I know this much is true. Um, I think you're going to see the same thing happen with Kate Winslet in the show. I think she's absolutely dynamite. The, the accent is a little wobbly. It's it's kind of all over the place because uh, she's got to do this Pennsylvania accent, which is very unique. 
and her British accent pops through every now and then. Um, but, but she is tremendous. The cast is terrific. Uh, there's sort of a, a dual mystery track that you're going on. I really loved Evan Peters as her, her young partner who, who comes in. And I just think, um, yeah, writer Brad Ingles, Inglesby, he knows these people. He knows uh, th this community and, and the way that they talk, what they talk about. And he just really does a great job uh, capturing it and setting up all these red herrings. You know, like each episode, you're like, oh, I think it, now I think it's this guy. Now I think it's this guy. Or maybe it's this girl, you know. And so we're still guessing five episodes in. There's only there's only two uh, left that I got to see. And I'm craving them like crazy. Uh, Craig Zobel directed it. He does a, a fantastic job. This is, this, he's the director of, of Compliance. And, and the same suspense that he brought to that show, I, I think this show has in spades, along with the, you know, the, 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 the family drama elements and, and some really emotional stuff. Uh, here's hoping that he winds up on this very podcast. I think he would be, it would be fascinating to talk about this show with him. I think it's just a matter of timing. You know, do we want to do it after the first episode? Do we want to wait for people to sort of find their way into it a little bit more? But uh, all I will say is that highest recommendation, Mayor of Easttown, you got to check it out this weekend on HBO Sunday night. Um, yeah, make sure you check out the, the most recent episode of For Your Consideration, where we talk about the, uh, the best actress Smackdown brewing for the Oscars. I mean, and what we thought it was going to be Carrie Mulligan all season, then Viola Davis comes along and wins the SAG. And now people are kind of reconsidering Frances McDormand of it all. Like, okay, she's won before, but you know, so, so did Tom Hanks and Christoph Waltz, Catherine Hepburn, and Daniel Day-Lewis. Like she's a great actress. I don't know how you can say she's not amazing in this movie. Um, that's going to be fun to watch. So, so definitely check out uh, the most recent episode of FYC and that'll do it. I think we're going to end the show there. I've already gone pretty long. Um, we'll see what kind of goodies we have uh, next week. If there's an interview in store or whatever, or maybe we'll do a, a gigantic mailbag episode. Keep sending in the questions. You can follow me on Twitter at the Insnider or Insnider plus, you know, if, if you want to get a little bonus content, some, some tweets that don't make it onto the, the main account. Um, and yeah, otherwise guys, make sure you get vaccinated and, uh, and stay safe out there. Uh, this, this thing ain't over yet. We, we, we cannot let up this pandemic, uh, but at least we've got a lot of good entertainment around the corner. So stay tuned. Don't miss it. And I'll see you soon. Later. Later.